Welcome to Legal Management Talk, official podcast of the Association of Legal Administrators. I'm your host, Christina Vragovich. Today we have with us Kevin Klenderkast, President and General Counsel at Research Associates Incorporated, which is a corporate investigative firm, background checks, due diligence, and litigation support. Kevin is a guest contributor to Attorney at Law magazine and is here to answer some of our questions about background screening in today's law firm, both domestically and internationally. Welcome, Kevin. It's great to have you on the show. Well, thank you, Christina. It's great to be with you today. So can you tell us a little bit about your role at Research Associates? Sure. I am the president and general counsel here, and I've been here for over 20 years, not to date myself, but um, my my primary roles are uh, dealing with clients, client relationships, and the compliance aspect. I've been a practicing attorney uh, for quite some time, and there's a lot of regulations and laws that deal with background screening on a federal and state and even local level now. And I work with clients to develop legally compliant programs. Um, I regularly take calls from clients, emails from clients when they have questions about what their legal obligations may be or even how other clients may handle certain situations. Okay, great. So your company serves law firms of all sizes throughout the United States. Um, Can you give us a brief overview of some of the best practices these days in uh, screening potential hires? Yes, um, I think what we're really seeing right now is that more firms are screening their attorney candidates. Um, we've, we've seen in the past that law firms have had a practice of screening their administrative candidates, especially uh, people in IT, people in human resources, people who may have access to the, the computer systems, to the personal information of other employees. And law firms for quite some time, which, which is along with the national trend, has been doing background checks. Uh, historically, there's been some reluctance, I think, to screen attorneys, candidates, because possibly firms feel they may offend these people, um, but also because there's a feeling, I think, that the bar examining uh, authorities in the state have done comprehensive background checks before they license these individuals. And so there was some, I think, practice that maybe we shouldn't do attorneys, but we're really seeing that start to turn around, especially with the rise of the contingent workforce and placements and things like that. Um, attorneys want to do their own uh, background checks on potential attorney hires. One of the other things we're seeing, too, is that contracts that law firms may have with their clients, if they serve clients in certain industries, like the mortgage industry or the pharmaceutical industry or the banking or finance, these contracts now require background checks on any professionals or staff that are deployed to their account. So they need to come in compliance with their contracts and perform certain levels of background checks. But those are really the the trends we're starting to see. Uh, in the industry right now. And what are some items that come up in a background investigation that law firms consider when deciding whether to exclude a candidate from consideration? Are there some common deceptions these days that employers need to look out for when evaluating a background report? 
Yes, I mean, what we really see is a lot of consistency in industries. Uh, we work with a lot of professional firms, not just in the legal marketplaces, but in accounting and consulting. And probably, of, obviously, the number one would be if there's, you know, a prior criminal history on a candidate, uh, especially involving theft or some dishonesty, violence, or, or a workplace issue. I mean, that's in many cases going to be an exclusionary item. Um, you know, with a lot of campus hires and new hires, you may have, you know, issues in their college that they did something stupid, um, most times alcohol-related, and sometimes law firms will, will forgive those kind of young mistakes. But, I mean, we recently had a case where a partner candidate was stopped by police. He was arrested, but he was not convicted. And in the state where this occurred, they could not use the conviction. But they were very interested in the underlying facts of the case because the individual was picked up um, in an area of town at 2 a.m. on a Saturday morning, um, not near his home and with a woman who was not his wife. Um, and this was an area of town that was known for drugs and prostitution. Now, while they could not um, use the criminal case against this individual because there was no conviction, um, they did want to inquire with this individual what he was doing at that part of town at that time of night. And uh, he did not offer a satisfactory explanation, and uh, they did not proceed to uh, elevate him to partner. Um, deception is another issue that comes up. Um, there's been a lot of um, discussion about the criminal history question on job applications, and there's what's called ban-the-box laws now that really they want employers to take that checkbox in the criminal history question out of the employment application and move that later in the process. And sometimes we see that a candidate will check no uh, as part of the background screening process when the question is asked. Um, when in fact there is a conviction and really any type of deception, whether it be educational deception, a deception as to their employment history, um, employees look at that and, or employers look at that in, in a negative light, obviously. Um, and they also look for discrepancies. Um, a lot of our clients, they, they look at the job application and resume as very important documents, which they are. And they expect their candidates to be accurate, because if they can't be accurate on their job application, if they're not accurate on their resume, um, how can they trust that this person will be accurate and keeping time and uh, doing the reports or even doing the legal work uh, that might be required of a new associate or even a partner? So that, that's one thing, and, and we see a lot of discrepancies in employment histories. We see a lot of discrepancies in educational histories. Uh, some of those are quite innocent. Maybe you're, you know, we've had candidates that may have fulfilled um, their obligations in December, we'll say, but they didn't walk at graduation until May or June. So there may be some dates or maybe an employment from eight years ago. They're off by a month or two. You know, those aren't material. Uh, to, most, to all of our clients, really. But when somebody is off by six months or a year or they put down the wrong employer name um, or they don't accurately report the degree they received, um, that tends to be an issue of you know, quality. Is this person paying attention to detail? Do they have the skills and capabilities to pay attention to detail on the job? 
Um, and one of the big things we see, obviously, is uh, educational fraud and employment fraud. Um, and a lot of employers think it'll never happen to them. And I can tell you, Christina, that we see it every day. People lie about their degrees. Uh, people will claim degrees that they never obtained. They'll claim employment at impressive places where they never worked. And we get to the bottom of that and find out, um, did they really work there? I mean, a lot of um, people, not a lot, but we see cases where somebody may claim that they went to a school that's out of business or that's no longer operating because they think that they can get away with it because you can't verify the degrees. Well, you can. I mean, there's usually a repository where those records are kept. So, I mean, those are the kind of the, the major deceptions that we see and that employers want to look for uh, when they're screening employees and deciding whether or not to exclude a candidate or not. You know, if, if you lie on a job application, you know, generally there's no criminal charges filed. Um, the person just doesn't get a job. They weren't otherwise qualified. Uh. But more importantly, the employer has avoided an employee that really shouldn't be on their payroll. And what we find in our statistics, and we've done thousands and thousands of background cases for law firms over the years, uh, it's about 5% um, hit ratio where you have somebody um, that is trying to get into your firm, and by the time you've done the background check on them, they've passed their interviews. They Usually you're at the offer letter stage at this point, so they've, they've gotten through the process, and we're down to the background check. And about 5% of people who are applying to your firm uh, are absolutely unqualified to be within the walls of your building, either because they do have a criminal history of possibly violence or theft, or they just don't have the requisite skills or the requisite integrity uh, to work at your firm. Wow. So, so background screening obviously involves a great deal of personal information on a job candidate. Are there any privacy laws or other regulations that firms should be aware of when establishing a program or even for those that are currently performing background screening? You know, that's a great question because that, that has been a, a big area of expansion in the law probably in the last 10 years. Um, employers have to be aware of what the legal obligations are in terms of what they need to give a candidate prior to performing a background investigation. Um, there are certain forms that are required at the federal level, um, and there are also forms required at the state level, um, California, New York, um, Oklahoma, Minnesota, um, all have very specific forms that must be provided to a candidate. And that's one of the functions when you asked me earlier, what are you know some of my primary duties at the firm? You know, my responsibility is to make sure our clients are using the right forms. And in fact, we've automated that entire process for our clients. But you have to get the forms right. You have to get the consents right because it has been uh, a very large area of litigation. Um, if you have a candidate that you are going to exclude from consideration because of a background investigation, there are some very specific procedures that you have to follow under federal law, uh, under some state laws, and even under local laws now. Um, Los Angeles, New York, San Francisco, uh, Philadelphia have recently enacted ordinances that require a very specific procedure that the employer must follow if they're going to exclude a candidate. And it's really a, an area of regulatory enforcement uh, if employers are not following that. And it's really a hot area for class action litigation. So you really have to tread carefully. And then there's uh, 
reporting and use restrictions, what we call. Uh, a number of states have restrictions on what we can report to an employer. For example, California. We cannot tell you about a criminal case that's over seven years old from disposition. And there's actually probably about a dozen similar laws throughout the country, depending on the state. And that's really what employers have to be careful about is, you know, you may be a regional firm or even a local firm, and you're primarily hiring in a state that may not have a lot of regulation. But every now and then, you may get a candidate who's attending college in California, in New York, and that can be deemed their residence. And therefore, because they're resident there, you need to comply with those laws even if you are not located in that state. So there's, there's some fine-tuning to a program to make sure you're in compliance with the law, and, and that's a big part of what I do for my clients. So I know I heard a lot um, when I was in school about employers using social media when doing background checks. Um, what are some of the trends that you see there for the legal industry specifically? Well, you, again, uh, and this kind of, piggybacks on to the, um, what we just talked about regarding legal requirements. I mean, I, I don't know if you're on Facebook or if a lot of your listeners are on Facebook, but maybe the next time you or your listeners sign on to Facebook and you look at what your friends and family members and acquaintances are posting, just kind of ask yourself, if I was an employer, would I ever want to know this information? Because when you look at what people post on, online, they post about medical conditions for themselves and their family. Uh, they post about possibly whether they're pregnant or whether they're, you know, have children. Um, you're, if there's pictures of them, you're going to learn, obviously, their race, uh, possibly their religion. Uh, a lot of people maybe click like for a you know, certain church, or even if they're posting, you know, Merry Christmas or Happy Hanukkah. Um, you're going to learn possibly what their religion is. You can learn their sexual orientation or marital status, um, even status as a recovering alcoholic. Um, and, and basically, when you look at Facebook and a lot of what people post and what they what they tweet, it is almost like a checkbox of things an employer does not want to know under any circumstances when they're considering an right. applicant for employment because they're they're protected classifications under state and federal EEOC laws. Um, so that's a big part of it. If you if you're going to check social media, you have to have a written policy uh, defining what your employees can and cannot look at, because you don't want to have a policy where you're doing one thing, let's say in your Los Angeles office, and you're not doing the same thing in your New York office, or you have people in one office or even in the same office that are checking Google and Facebook, and you've got other ones that are doing a Yahoo search, and there's you've got to have, and I think HR people definitely, and attorneys and uh, people in the legal field that appreciate that. You can't treat different uh, classifications differently. So you have to be consistent with the policy. I mean, what we do, we offer a social media search to our clients, and we scour out any protected class information. I mean, basically what our clients want to know you know, is there excessive partying going on? Are there some signs of issues that may be involved? Are there violent posts or things that they want to be aware of because their clients can become aware of this? Um, you send a young associate or even a partner out to an engagement, they may Google the person. And you, you definitely kind of want to know what's out there before you put your possibly client relationships in jeopardy by, you know, sending somebody to a site or even bringing somebody into your own firm 
because coworkers Google each other. And that's hard to police, um, but you really have to be careful with social media if you're going to do it. Again, you, you really have to have a written policy as to what is and what is not allowed. Um, I know a lot of our employers, uh, clients, do not allow Facebook access and that kind of access from their computer systems for that very reason. Uh, you can't really control what people do at home. Um, but, you know, kind of locking everything down and making sure that you're not receiving protected class information that can get you in trouble. Many firms have already or are contemplating establishing a presence outside of the United States. Do any of your clients perform background screening on an international basis? And if so, what are some of the major differences between domestic and international background screening? We do. I mean, we have a, you know, we represent very large firms. We represent regional firms uh, of all sizes. And we've seen a trend where they're starting to expand their overseas presence um, in, in Europe, in Asia, really all over the world. And there is a great difference. I mean, in the United States, we allow pretty much free access to information on people. And our privacy laws are kind of driven not so much by access. We have public records and people can go into the courthouse and find out pretty much anything they want uh, on anything that's public. Whereas in, let's say, for example, Europe, they don't even grant access. Um, you know, in the United States, we give access, but we really control how people use information. You cannot use certain information against people in certain circumstances. In the European Union, um, you can't even get access to some things, and not every country. Um, so what you end up doing is the, the best available search that's available just to establish that you've done your due diligence on this candidate with the best available information. Um, there are, are a lot of countries that do allow free access. Um, generally, education degrees can be verified. Uh, we are seeing more candidates coming from overseas, um, attending school in the United States, and, and possibly staying, um, you know, getting properly processed and being able to work in the United States. Um, and so we, we have to check those things out. You want to verify their education. You, want to, you, know, you always want to make sure you verify references, whether it's an international case or a national case. And I know a lot of employers do this in-house, and maybe they get to it, maybe they don't. But, I mean, we, we recently had a case, again, another partner candidate who completely falsified a reference um, because we don't accept cell phones um, as an appropriate means to verify information. And really, if, if you're doing these yourself um, or if you have a, a provider already, you know, make sure they're calling a company line that's verifiable because you don't know who's on the other end of a cell phone. And we had a candidate last week who we're absolutely convinced was impersonating a reference. Um, and the person worked at a very large consulting firm. Well, when we called the consulting firm and went through their switchboard, and it was a Chicago office, and there was only one individual by this name we verified at the Chicago office, it was definitely not the person who gave the reference interview uh, to our investigator. Um, so you have those kind of cell phone falsifications, and we're seeing that a lot more. Um, you really have to make sure you verify everything, whether it's international, whether it's domestic, through a company line, or directly through the school. Um, Christine, it would amaze you how many times we get false transcripts where somebody claims an educational degree or a diploma, 
and we cannot verify it at the school, we cannot verify it through sources, and we go back to our client and say, can you ask them to produce a diploma and uh, transcripts from where they went? Um, and sure enough, in a lot of these cases, we get a diploma and we get transcripts. The first thing we do is just send them to the school. We send them over to the registrar's office and say, you know, you weren't able to verify this person. Can you verify this information? And it would amaze you how many times we get the call back that says that's a false document. The person who signed that diploma was never chancellor of the university. In fact, we had one case, and again, it was an out-of-business school, and we were able to track down the former president of the university. And I personally called him and said, hey, if I send you a diploma, can you tell me whether or not this is legitimate? Because this person's been working under this diploma for over 25 years and had become actually a respected person in her field. And the, the, the former president called me back and was laughing and said, this is not our degree. This is, that's not the seal from the school. This is a completely fabricated document. And wow. this person was working at a pretty prestigious firm at the time um, who probably just said, well, the school's out of business. There's not a whole lot we can do about it. Um, you know, what you don't want is your client to find that out, that somehow your client discovers that this person isn't who they say they are, um, and you're probably going to lose a client. You know, and usually that stuff comes up in litigation when things go wrong, and all of a sudden everybody's doing their due diligence after the fact, when really the time to do due diligence is before you get to litigation and before you run into these kinds of issues. Well, this has been absolutely fascinating. Kevin, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you to our listeners and subscribers for tuning in. Uh, on a personal note, this is my last podcast episode for ALA. It's been my pleasure to be your host, and please keep tuning in for more great interviews to come. As always, you can learn more about ALA at alanet.org and catch up on all things legal industry in our digital magazine at legalmanagement.org. That's legalmanagement.org. This is Christina Vragovich signing off.